0: This week, CPUC issues proposed decision approving pg and plan. Dean Foods ad hoc Noteholder Group proposes Plan B tie-up with Borden. Midstream and focus with unprecedented negative WTI futures prices. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg.
1: Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding.
0: And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, we'll get a review of Argentina's debt negotiations and analysis of Digicel's exchange offer from Kylo Usu and the Laram team. And we'll hear, of course, from legal analyst Sean Daly. It's Sunday, April 26th. At the conclusion of a contested hearing on Thursday, Judge David Jones granted the Dean Food Debtor's Motion to reject their collective bargaining agreements with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters in connection with their sale of assets to producers' dairy foods. The court directed, however, that the $250,000 of the sale proceeds be reserved for the benefit of the affected 55 union employees pending further court order. As indicated in the motion, rejection of the CBAs is an express condition of the sale. Judge Jones acknowledged that the union employees worked throughout these cases to, quote, keep food on the table for their families, but emphasized that he faces the, quote, harsh realities of the bigger picture and the potential outcome, if the motion were not granted. Judge Jones explained that although he does not like the outcome, granting the motion is, quote, the only possible outcome that makes any sense, given the alternative. Quote, we simply don't need another shuttered plant or parking lot, the court said. Also at the hearing, Brian Resnick of Davis Polk, appearing for the debtors, provided a status report on various matters, including the various sales that are in process. Resnick noted, among other things, that the, quote, antitrust issues have been resolved in connection with the Prairie Farm sale, and there has been a, quote, "...substantial progress in the ongoing process with the U.S. Department of Justice regarding the DFA sale." Prior to the hearing, the ad hoc noteholder group proposed a, quote, "...plan B merger of Dean Foods and Borden Dairy, which has committed financing of at least a billion dollars." According to the noteholder group's filing, the Borden-Dean merger would be effectuated through separate and coordinated Chapter 11 plans in their respective Chapter 11 cases. The filing details that, quote, upon consummation of the Borden-Dean merger, a wholly owned subsidiary of Borden will merge with and into Dean Foods. And upon consummation of the merger, Dean Foods would hol- be a wholly named subsidiary of borden Resnick characterized the plan as, quote, sort of late-breaking news and indicated that the debtors were surprised by the announcement and were not prepared to discuss the matter at the hearing, but would later take it up with the noteholder group, which is composed of Knighthead Capital Management, Ascribe3 Investments, Ensign Peak Advisors, Kings Ferry Capital, and Behrens Investment Group Management.
1: The California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, issued a proposed decision on Monday approving the PG&E Debtors Chapter 11 Plan of Reorganization, with conditions and modifications. CPUC approval is a prerequisite to the debtors' participation in the Wildfire Insurance Fund laid out by AB-1054. The decision followed seven days of live testimony and two rounds of post-hearing briefing. It requires plan modification to ensure that, quote, Neither confirmation nor consummation of the plan shall affect any pending or future commission proceeding or investigation. It requires approval by the CPUC commissioners, which may be obtained at the earliest on May 21st. Separately, Commissioner Clifford Rechstaufen issued a proposal to impose $1.937 billion in penalties against PG&E for its, quote, role in the catastrophic 2017 and 2018 wildfires it would be the largest penalty ever assessed by the CPUC, according to the proposal. It will be considered at the CPUC's May 7th meeting. And PG&E CEO William D. Johnson announced his resignation from the utility effective June 30th. Quote, I joined PGE to help get the company out of bankruptcy and stabilize operations. By the end of June, I expect that both of those goals will have been met, he said. Board member William L. Smith will serve as interim CEO.
0: Moving over to the island of Puerto Rico, U.S. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, in a Monday press release and letter to Governor Wanda Vasquez, expressed concern about, quote, questionable contracts and potentially wasted relief money related to the current COVID-19 pandemic and other recent disasters in Puerto Rico. It appears that the procurement and contracting in Puerto Rico often passes through a filter of political connections before resources intended for the people of Puerto Rico actually reach them and achieve the intended use, depriving the people of Puerto Rico the the primacy that they deserve, Grassley wrote. Late Monday, Governor Wanda Vasquez said her administration would, quote, answer the concerns of Senator Grassley without diverting attention from our work on behalf of thousands of U.S. citizens on the island to combat and to control the invisible threat that COVID-19 represents for the entire nation, according to a press release. At a Wednesday omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued a preliminary ruling on the UCC's motion to reclassify general unsecured claims under the plan of adjustment ahead of the hearing oral argument, stating it was her, quote, inclination to deny the motion without prejudice. The UCC will be allowed to refile the motion to be heard in conjunction with the disclosure statement hearing. The judge stated that there were, quote, practical benefits in hearing the motion prior to solicitation of votes on the plan of adjustment. The judge said that some, quote, unbundling of issues may be better dealt with when we come back to them by reason of an amendment to the plan or otherwise. My denial of the motion without prejudice is intended to create the opportunity for an updated and more discreet packaging of issues of the various constituencies in the context of disclosure statement litigation, she explained. After hearing the party's respective responses to the preliminary ruling, Judge Swain said she, quote, remained persuaded that taking up the matters in conjunction with the determination on the disclosure statement, and as, quote, part of a continuum toward confirmation, is more appropriate than hearing the motion today. And she denied the motion consistent with her preliminary ruling.
1: Midstream companies were in focus last week. The May contract for West Texas Intermediate traded below zero for the first time in the contract's history as U.S. commercial storage approached capacity at Cushing, Oklahoma, and elsewhere. Midstream operator Holly Energy lowered its quarterly distribution by 48%, while pipeline and storage giant Kinder Morgan increased its cash dividend by a lower-than-expected amount as the company elected to focus on flexibility and balance sheet strength in these, quote, unprecedented times. Kinder Morgan said it sees its 2020 distributable cash flow falling about 10 percent from its previously expected $5.1 billion. Western Midstream Partners declared a quarterly cash distribution of 31.1 cents per unit for the first quarter, down 50 percent from the fourth quarter of 2019. Bonanza Creek lowered its 2020 CapEx guidance to a range of 60 to $70 million compared with prior guidance of 80 to $100 million. Onshore driller Patterson UTI reported that first quarter revenue fell 36% and forecast that average second quarter rig count will decrease by about one third from the average count of 123 in the first quarter. Valaris updated its fleet status report, reporting a total March 31st contract backlog of $1.88 billion, a $572 million decrease compared with December 31st, 2019, as well as two contract terminations. Travel companies continue to preserve cash or raise cash while operations remain dormant. Southwest Airlines announced $3.3 billion in assistance from the Treasury Department as part of the CARES Act. Alaska Airlines announced receipt of $992 million from the Treasury Department's Paycheck Protection Program. The cash will cover 70% of wages through September 30th, the company said. Expedia announced a plan to raise $3.2 billion in new capital, including $1.2 billion in preferreds and $2 billion in new debt. It also suspended its dividend and reduced executive pay by 25 percent. Hertz said it began terminating non-union employees on April 14th and union employees on April 21st. Savings will equal $30 million over the next 12 months, inclusive of $30 million in severance and benefits costs. Lyft withdrew 2020 guidance provided on February 11th, citing a negative impact on ride volumes beginning in mid-March and into April. Retailers began disclosing decisions to defer or abate rent as stores remained closed. Gap Inc. said it suspended rental payments on closed stores beginning in April. Savings are approximately $115 million per month for its North American locations, according to the release. The company said it expects to have $750 to $850 million in cash at the end of the quarter. GameStop announced, quote, discussions with our landlords that include a potential abatement, deferral, and or restructuring of future rent obligations payable. It also disclosed executive pay reductions effective April 26th and options to team members to work half-time with half-pay or be paced on temporary furlough. Other top stories last week were Travelport first lien lenders organized with Aiken Gump. CWT working with Kirkland Houlihan on strategic options amid COVID-19 travel hit fully draws revolver. Sycamore terminates $525 million Victoria's Secret acquisition on account of voluntary actions taken by retailer in response to COVID-19 crisis, seeks judicial declaration that actions breach agreement and material adverse effect provision triggered.
0: Now here is Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead.
2: Well, thanks, Roxy. Good morning, folks. It's going to be a very busy week ahead between doings down at the courthouse and corporate earnings, all very interesting stuff, I'm sure. So this is just the highlights I'm going to give you. If you want the whole thing, please see our Ford Weekly, which is released early every Monday morning. And in the meantime, I hope this will satisfy you. Kind of like when you go into the French restaurant, while you're waiting for them to whip up the blood sauce for your pressed duck, they bring out something on a saucer called an amuse-boucher. That's not the correct pronunciation, but you get the idea. Anyhow, on Monday, April 27th, Omnibus Hearing in Borden and the Charter Adversary Hearing in Windstream. Tuesday, April 28th, there's a sale Omnibus Hearing for Dean Foods and an Omnibus Hearing for Forever 21. Wednesday, April 29th, hearings galore, including PG&E, Web, Elemental Processing. That sounds interesting. Craftworks, not the band, and some others. And there are earnings from Hasbro, Antero, both resources and Midstream, Transocean, and Tesla. Thursday, we have a hearing in Sanchez Energy, and there's an attack of the earnings reports with Albertsons, Valaris, FTS, CalFrac, and Altice. Friday, May 1st, earnings are due from PG&E, and on Saturday, May 2nd, Sable Permian's Grace Period ends, and Chaparral has a payment due under its credit agreement. And that's about all from me, but you know the other day I was reading this book called The Idiot by this Russian writer named Dostoevsky, and one of the characters says that he is, quote, terribly fond, unquote, of reading about the deliberations of the English Parliament and how attractive he finds the various rhetorical devices as being the expressions of the parliamentarianism of a free nation. And, you know, in the same way, I really enjoy reading legal briefs. Some of them really do attain towards the level of quality literature, and it's like you're sitting in the chambers with Blackstone or Learned Hand or one of those guys. And, you know, like this one, which flowed from the pen of Skadden Arps, and it's related to the Zohar cases, and a quote, the Zohars and Barden Hill insisted their approach would maximize value for all parties, and Barden Hill represented the creditors would be no worse off under their approach. But it turns out that the Zohar's judgments were awful and Barden Hill's talk was cheap. Talk is cheap. Name of the solo album from Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, to which I confess I never listened. Anyways, I better stop here and pass the mic over to my good friend Sean Daly, who's going to talk to you all about more serious matters.
3: Thanks, Jim. On week five of the coronavirus legal roundup, it's Back to the Cares Act. A new variation of mothball motion is denied, and more deals are being recut in light of the coronavirus' impact on varied businesses. Two follow-ups from last week. First, the Paycheck Protection Program. The Treasury Department on Friday posted another interim final rule addressing, among other things, eligibility of a prospective borrower in bankruptcy. The latest rule provides that, quote, if the applicant or the owner of the applicant is the debtor in a bankruptcy proceeding, Either the time it submits the application or at any time before the loan is disbursed, the applicant is ineligible to receive a PPP loan. The rule further says that if the applicant, again, or the owner of the applicant, a uh, nice way to, to get it um, you know, to reduce game playing within capital, uh, corporate structures, if um, either of those two parties becomes the debtor in a bankruptcy proceeding after submitting an application but before the loan is disbursed, It is, quote, the applicant's obligation to notify the lender and request cancellation of the application. Otherwise, quote, failure by the applicant to do so will be regarded as a use of PPP funds for unauthorized purposes. And the uh, rule says it is, quote, effective immediately. So this is interesting under uh, several of the the examples and hypos discussed last week. Um, For instance, Longview Power, its first day declaration, Uh, the facts that it had applied uh, for PPP loan, been approved, but then filed for bankruptcy before any, any funds were dispersed. So it looks like the debtor in that case may have made it through just in the nick of time in light of this updated guidance. In Forever 21, Judge Mary Walrath denied the limited mothball motion we discussed last week. As a refresher, the purchaser of the debtor's assets as opposed to the debtor was seeking to modify the sale order to permit uh, it to reject certain leases but not turn over the premises until it is able to recover inventory in light of the various uh, shelter-in-place orders currently outstanding. Judge Walrath said that Section 105, which gives the court broad equitable powers, is, quote, not a blank check and did not give her authority to grant the motion. She pointed to language in 105 subsection D, which permits the court to grant any relief that is uh, in furtherance of a provision of the code and not in contravention of any other section, Judge Walrus said that she thought uh, the the relief to uh, deem a lease rejected, yet not turn over uh, the property violated section 365, as well as section 363e, which requires adequate protection for use of a third party's property. Uh, a couple of interesting points to, you know, perhaps respectfully disagree with the court, Uh, Judge Walters said that, quote, there is no provision in the bankruptcy code to protect the interests of a non-debtor third party under the given circumstances, adding that uh, the buyer's relief would be limited to the terms of the asset purchase agreement, and that while sympathetic to the buyer's plight, quote, there is simply no basis in the bankruptcy code, and Supreme Court law precludes the court from granting this relief. Um, I would, you know, Posit that you could still look to Section 105A, which says the court may issue any order, process, or judgment that is necessary or appropriate to carry out the provisions of the bankruptcy code. Um, Or even, you know, if if you craft a relief that doesn't violate a specific provision, then 105D seems to come back into play. Also, uh, an interesting comment from the court uh, trying to distinguish um, certain of the, the other cases we've discussed naming specifically models in Pier 1, uh, trying to distinguish it from Forever 21 facts by saying that those cases were grounded in Section 305 of the Bankruptcy Code, which deals with the suspension of a case, and that they were for the benefit of a debtor, not a, a third party. Uh, I would posit that, well... Models was indeed couched in terms of Section 305. Pier One and Craftworks were both seeking um, the requested relief under Section 105, uh, 305, and the alternative, but th- that wasn't really the the driver for those cases. On to uh, valuation matters and uh, more deals falling apart or being recut. On Friday, in the McClatchy Chapter 11 cases, the UCC. Um, made a, a really great statement. They were criticizing a credit bid lobbed in from firstly Noteholders, Brigade and Chatham asset management. Uh, but the, the committee said, and this, I think this is just a good way to talk about the general current state of play. Uh, quote, "The decision to embark on a sale process during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic makes little sense in turns the bankruptcy goal of maximizing the value of the estate on its head. Indeed, allowing a process to proceed with the goal of transferring the debtor's assets at their absolute trough value would be a travesty. To highlight this point, M&A and debt markets have been dislocated, due diligence will be challenging, and any logical strategic candidates to purchase the debtor's businesses are all focused on their own operational needs and therefore lack the necessary bandwidth to consider M&A opportunities at this point. The committee further says that, Suggests that any bid that does somehow result from such a process can hardly be expected to serve as a proxy for a true fair market value of the debtor's assets. Uh, further calling the credit bid little more than a disguised effort by the lenders to foreclose upon the debtor's assets, uh, which should be denied. For reference, under the plan proposed by the debtors on the first day of the cases, Firstly, notes claims would receive take-back debt and substantially all pre-dilution reorganized equity would go to second and thirdly notes claims held uh, principally by Chatham. So more recently, Chatham and Brigade have proposed a credit bid by Firstly Notes for substantially all assets. Firstly, notes other than Chatham would receive a similar amount of take-back paper. Chatham would receive take-back paper as well and $30 million of new money that Chatham was going to pay in exchange for uh, new subordinated debt under the original plan would now instead be traded for 100% of equity in the credit bid vehicle. So it sort of gives you an implication of the, uh, or you know, some, some way to think about implied uh, valuation drop. In OFS company Pioneer Energy Services case, uh, an ad hoc group of note holders, which had committed at the beginning of the case under an RSA with the debtors and secured debt, uh, to commit approximately $200 million of new money is now trying to get out of the um, under restructuring contemplated by the RSA, pointing to both uh, potential material adverse change provision as well as saying that uh, required financial information has not been satisfactory to, to the note holders. And the group has dropped in number from approximately, I think it was seven to four, and they went from holding in excess of two-thirds of notes claims to now, I think, half of that, maybe 75% down to 37% if if memory serves. Uh, So the the debtors here, and the the debtors issued revised uh, disclosure statement, financial projections. The ad hoc group says the debtors may still, even in one scenario where EBITDA is cut approximately in half from that estimated at the beginning of the cases, uh, the debtors may still be quote understating the severity of the problem, so the debtors are pressing towards confirmation. The secured debt, which is getting taken out by new money from the notes, they're they're fine with the RSA. Uh, so it's it's really the the notes trying to um, you know re, recut the deal. Finally, a uh, little bit of an anomalous transaction in court on Thursday at the speedcast first day hearing. Judge Marvin Isger ruled uh, that he would, well, he approved a proposed dip roll-up on an interim basis, uh, saying that the situation before him was one that was unlikely to ever be replicated, pointing to the coronavirus pandemic. And although uh, Judge Isger made clear that he would be unlikely to approve such release in a normal case, he observed that this simply wasn't a normal case despite Isger's caveats query how long it is until the, uh, the result here that an interim roll-up was granted uh, comes up in another debtor's papers. That's it for me this week. Stay healthy. And now over to Kyle Wusu and members of the LATAM and Covenants teams for an update on Argentina's debt negotiations and an analysis of Digicel's exchange offer. Hi,
4: my name is Kyle Owusu. I am a director at Reorg Research. I manage the emerging markets credit content for the Americas and Europe teams, and I'm joined here by my colleagues Lev Bredo and Santiago del Carrillo to talk about Argentina
5: and Digicel. Thanks so much, Kyle. I think for Argentina, we're going to start with Santiago providing some of the background and the context, and then I'm going to get into the details of the exchange offer. Santiago, the Argentine government formally kicked off the restructuring process towards the end of last week when offered offer to creditors. That offer concerns about $64 billion equivalent of foreign law bonds. Can you provide us an overview of where things stand with the negotiation and the offer? Well,
6: on Monday, the three main bondholder groups holding Argentine dollar-denominated foreign debt almost in unison issued press releases rejecting the offer. Although many analysts were surprised at the government's terms, which involved a 5.4% haircut on principal. cut on interest rate payments in a three-year grace period were better than expected, bondholder groups declined the offer, most likely under the pretense that they can get a better deal before negotiations are set to expire on May 8th. However, this week the Argentine government publicly expressed that there's no further room for negotiations. Uh, This happened when Economy Minister Martin Guzman publicly warned on Tuesday that the government can't offer more, specifically specifically stating that the offer is what it is when asked what parts of the offer were negotiable. But everyone is assuming that there is some space to negotiate further.
5: Does Argentina intend to continue servicing its debt during the negotiations?
6: No. On Wednesday, the Republic announced that it would not make a payment of around $503 million in interest owed on three global bonds due in 2021, 2026, and 2046. These bonds are a part of the debt restructuring negotiations and have a 30-day grace period with regard to the interest payments. The government's negotiation period, however, will expire on May 8th.
5: Are any of Argentina's provinces following the national government's example in formally announcing a debt-restructuring proposal to creditors?
6: Well, yes. On Tuesday, the province of Buenos Aires finance ministry confirmed to Reorg that they would present a debt-restructuring proposal very similar to the national government. The proposal consists of a 7% principal haircut, three-year interest grace period, like the national government, the provinces and little would begin paying step-up coupon interest that would grow at a sustainable level. That would allow the government to save 55% in interest rate payments, while the maturities are extended from 4.7 years to 13 years on average. In total, the aggregate reduction in interest and principal payments would be around $5 billion between 2020 and 2030. Several other provinces could could follow suit, such as Córdoba province that announced the other day that they are planning to restructure their debt. And Chibut and La Rioja province, provinces have both announced their intentions to move forward in that regard. Didn't
5: the province of Buenos Aires earlier this year seek a consent solicitation to amend a coupon?
6: Yes. Buenos Aires province had to pay a $250 million coupon in February. That was due on January 26, actually. But because bondholder Fidelity Investment was able to block the province from obtaining the 75% creditor approval needed for the consent solicitation, that would have reprofiled the coupon. On the other hand, financial advisors Mensana, the firm which is also representing Greylock, along with ORIC as the group's legal advisors, which are involved in the sovereign debt restructuring negotiations, had at that time accepted an offer by the province for an early $75 million amortization payment with the other 70% postponed until May 20th. But that didn't end up happening. As of yet, there hasn't been any public comments from creditor groups holding size province's debt. But the finance minister of the province, Pablo Lopez, has already drawn a line in the sand stating this is the only offer there is, similar to what Guzman did with the national debt, but we'll we will be paying close attention to these negotiations in the upcoming weeks. All right. Well, let's switch hats here, and I'll let you, Lev, get more into depth with Argentina and Buenos Aires province's debt restructuring proposals. Before we get into nuance, can you provide a bit of context regarding Argentina's debt structure?
5: Thanks, Santiago. Argentina has a very complex debt structure. The headline gross debt number exceeds three hundred twenty billion U.S. dollar equivalent, but not all of that is subject to the restructuring and so not relevant for our purposes now. At a very high level though, I think the structure can bucket into three main categories. First, multilateral and bilateral obligations. The largest there is probably an IMF facility that Argentina received following a 2018 currency crisis. Argentina has drawn over $40 billion on that IMF facility. In addition, it has a number of other bilateral obligations outstanding. Second. There's a significant category of uh, bond obligations that are held by a central bank. Those are less relevant for our purposes, though might become relevant in the future depending on the the structure of any IMF aid going forward. Now, finally, the third bucket, which is really the the heart of the matter in terms of the restructuring proposal, that's debt held by private creditors. That is further subcategorized into two different buckets. Local law obligations, which total over $60 billion equivalent, and they're denominated, though, in both foreign currency as well as Argentine pesos. And finally, foreign law bonds held by private creditors. Those are essentially all foreign currency, some denominated in dollars, some in euros, and some in Swiss francs. They're actually further split beyond that to make the situation even more complicated, and they're issued under two main indentures. One in 2005, which is what we're going to discuss later, has some more creditor-friendly terms. Another, from 2016... Which all things equal is more issuer friendly, and we're getting again to get into why those decisions are so important here.
6: Lev, could you give some insight about how the offers are structured starting with the sovereign? Argentina's offer to
5: creditors seeks to exchange about sixty-four billion dollar equivalent of foreign law bonds. Those bonds have maturities ranging from twenty twenty six all the way out to twenty seventeen for Argentina's Century Bond. And again, those are denominated in dollars, Euros, and a small piece in Swiss francs. The exchange bonds would have five different maturities, the shortest out in 2030, then 2036, 2039, 2043, and 2047. The offering is dual currency, so each of the above maturities has a dollar and euro portion. Now, the deal presented to creditors is split into two core parts, one for the 2005 indenture and the other for the 2016. Beyond that, though, there are some essentially sub-offerings within each, each one with different treatment for different types of bonds with different maturities. Under the deal structure, holders of each type of bond by maturity would have their choice of between two or three different offers, essentially being able to receive their option, subject to certain caps of the exchange bonds of different maturities. Taking just half a step back, in terms of Argentina's goals here, I think the offer is focused really on reducing its interest expense and debt service costs. So, the offer has a three-year interest grace period for Argentina, and then beyond that, relatively low coupons, starting at just 0.5 or 0.6% on the dollar portion. That steps up over time, but generally is a much lower average interest rate than Argentina has on its current bonds. The total interest expense reduction is expected to be over 60%, Across the bonds. The principal haircuts, however, are relatively light, totaling about 5.6%. Interesting. And do we have a sense of how recoveries would look? Recoveries are somewhat complex to assess because they are very sensitive to the exit yield. In other words, the rate one uses to discount to present value the cash flows from the exchange bond obligations. There is significant uncertainty in the market regarding the appropriate number here. Some folks are discussing ranges around 8% while others are thinking something like 12 or even 13% would be more appropriate. To give a sense of why that input is so important, as an example, under scenarios of exit yields of, say, between 8 and 12%, the present value of the 2039 Middle Maturity Exchange Bond would range from the mid-50s, low-60s, all the way down to the 30s, depending on the exit yield and certain other assumptions that one uses in the model. Generally speaking, though, Recoveries are meaningfully higher for bonds under the 2005 indenture relative to the 2016. The 2005 has a bit over $20 billion outstanding. In terms of bonds under that indenture, the 2033 maturity bonds are slated to get an above-par value of exchange bonds, as much as 140%. The 2038 maturity is slated to get a par value of exchange bonds, so the 2033s are doing meaningfully better than the 38s here. Under the 2016 indenture, the bonds are getting a slight discount to par value in terms of the exchange bonds. And those exchange bonds again have much lower coupons than the originals. So overall, bonds under the 2016 indenture, which has about $43 billion outstanding, do meaningfully worse than those under the 2005. And um, how about the province? The exchange offer from the province of Buenos Aires, which was just announced Thursday, April 23rd, I found really interesting. Now. At a high level, the structure has some meaningful parallels to that of the sovereign. The province also has two main indentures, one from 2006, another from 2015, and so the exchange offer structure has meaningfully different terms for each of those bonds from the different indentures. At a high level, though, the goals of the province appear similar to that of the sovereign, in that the province needs to be focused on reducing interest expense rather than giving principal haircuts. Based on the government's estimates, Rates on the dollar bonds are expected to, on average, decrease from about 8.2% on the outstanding bonds to about 4.6% on the exchange bonds. For the euro bonds, the government estimates that, in aggregate, the average rate will decrease from about 4.6% to 2.9%. Now, in terms of the deal structure, the existing bonds have maturities from 2020 out to 2035 and they will be exchanged for bonds with maturities in 2032 or 2040s. The transaction structure, like that of the sovereign, is also dual currency, so there's dollar and euro-denominated portions of both of those maturities. Now, all things equal, bonds under the 2006 indenture are treated somewhat better than those under 2015. This is because, in addition to getting exchange bonds matured in 2032 or in 2040, the 2006 indenture It's getting a bit of a sweetener in the form of interest-only securities. Now, the interest-only securities are structured as follows. They have a $95 reference amount per 100 principal of the pre-exchange securities. The IOs accrue interest at 1.1% annualized for the U.S. dollar portion and 0.95% annualized on the euro portion. They mature in 2040 irrespective of whether holders select the 2032 or the 2040 maturity exchange bonds. And again, they appear to be only available to holders under the 2006 indenture and not under the 2015. Now, in terms of creditors and what those folks are thinking, we know that there are some groups formed and they have hired advisors. However, the creditors do not appear to have yet provided a formal response to the province. And it's not clear how that will shake out at this stage, though it's something we are following very, very closely.
6: And for the sovereign, how do you think the different contracts and clauses you mentioned before might impact negotiations?
5: Generally speaking, as I mentioned, bonds under the 2005 indenture are slated to receive a better recovery relative to the 2016 bonds. This is in part because the 2005 indenture has different collective action clauses which require the sovereign to obtain a higher level of consent from holders. At the same time, there are some other meaningful documentation differences which arguably could give the 2005 indenture some more negotiating leverage as a contractual matter. But focusing just on the collective action clauses, at least for now, under the 2005 indenture, to amend terms across series of bonds, the sovereign needs the consent of 85% of the aggregate principal, as well as two-thirds of each series of bonds. That means that in order to block a deal, a group of creditors would need to retain 15% of the aggregate principal or one-third of a series of particular bonds. 2016 indenture, though, can be amended with lower thresholds. For that, under single-limb restructuring, the sovereign needs consent of 75% instead of 85% of aggregate principal. For a dual-limb restructuring, the sovereign needs consent of two-thirds of aggregate principal plus 50% of each series of bonds. Thus, to block a deal, a group of holders under the twenty sixteen indenture would need twenty-five percent of the aggregate principal across Sirius for a single limb restructuring, or if the uniform condition uniformly app Sorry, I screwed up, let's go back like five or ten seconds. Thus, to block a deal, a group of holders under the twenty sixteen indenture would need to accumulate a position of twenty-five percent of aggregate principal outstanding across Sirius for a so-called single limb restructuring, or for a dual limb restructuring which has to be used if the uniformly applicable condition is not met, holders would need one-third of aggregate principle plus 50% of each series. So, putting all that together, under the 2016 indenture, blocking position would need to be much larger, which makes it more difficult and more expensive to accumulate. So, as a result, all things being equal, holders under the 2005 indenture arguably have more negotiating leverage and that may explain why they're slated to get a meaningfully higher recovery under the exchange offer. And do we have any color on the creditor groups? Could you have a blocking position under any of these indentures? There are three main groups of creditors for the sovereign that we know of. First, the Argentina Creditor Committee. Those folks are represented by ORC, UBS, and Mansana. They have not publicly disclosed their holdings. Second, an ad-hoc group of holders of the sovereign bonds, they are represented by White and Case. Based on their public disclosures, they hold over 25% of bonds under the 2016 indenture and over 15% of bonds under the 2005 indenture. Funds in that group include Alliance Bernstein, Mundi, and Ashmore. Finally, third, the group of exchange bond holders; Those folks are represented by Quinn Emanuel. They are reported to have about 16% of bonds under the 2005 indenture. Some funds in that group include Monarch and HBK. With respect to blocking positions, it appears that at least two of the three main groups of creditors may have blocking positions in respect of the 2005 indenture. That's because the White & Case represented ad hoc group is reported to have over 15% of the 2005 exchange bonds, while the Quinn Emanuel group is reported to have about 16% of bonds under the 2005 indenture. Interestingly, the ad hoc group may also potentially have a blocking position under the 2016 indenture. There, 25% is enough to block a so-called single limb restructuring, and that is reported to be what the group holds. Though, under the 2016, the sovereign may still have the fallback of pursuing a dual limb restructuring, which would require one-third of aggregate principle to block.
6: And do you see any potential compromises
5: that might help get a deal done? While it appears tough, there are at least four potential avenues we see that might help bridge the gap between the parties and help get a deal done. First, the parties could potentially hit pause. That is perhaps more realistic than it sounds, as Ecuador recently successfully pursued a consensus citation to achieve a four-month interest grace period in order to have a bit of breathing room to focus on assessing and addressing the COVID-19 issues. Given all of the uncertainties created as a result of COVID-19, it's possible that it could make sense, and the parties could be amenable to, taking a bit of a breather, waiting for things to calm down, and assessing the situation once the government in Argentina is able to address COVID-19 meaningfully, and then folks might have a clear sense of the economy going forward, as well as the sovereign's debt capacity. Second, the Argentine government could amend or sweeten the offer a little bit. That could take a few forms. For instance, the three-year interest grace period could be shortened somewhat in order to provide creditors with coupons earlier on in the process. Another option could be to step up the coupons a little bit higher so that the average interest rate on the exchange bonds is a little bit higher, which is not ideal for the sovereign, but could be something that the creditors are very much amenable towards. Another option there might be a change that is not applicable to all bonds, but is a sweetener to particular creditor subgroups in order to get them on board. For instance, perhaps better treatment for just the 2016 indenture bonds. A third option could be including GDP-linked securities as a sweetener to creditors. That's actually a point the government discussed in its initial restructuring guidelines, that was not included in the deal proposal, which I actually found a little bit surprising. Now, there is some litigation pending regarding allegations that the Argentine government may have adjusted some relevant measures on a prior issuance of GDP securities. So it's possible that that might have chilled interest. But there might be ways to structure such a transaction in order to avoid that particular risk. For instance, the relevant calculations could be done by an independent third-party agent, which should at least address um, the issues brought up in that particular litigation. Finally, as a fourth option, the sovereign could take a cue from the province and potentially offer a sweetener to consenting holders of an interest-only security. That interest-only security could be in foreign or local currency. It's likely that creditors would prefer foreign currency dollars or euros, but pesos would be easier for the government to service in the future reducing the currency risk for the government, and perhaps the government could then offer a somewhat higher coupon rate than they would be comfortable doing with foreign currency. There are, of course, many other options the parties could pursue, and as the situation develops, we're watching these dynamics very closely. The exchange offer formally expires on May 8th, and Argentina's interest grace period ends shortly after that, so we expect the next few weeks in this process to be very much action-packed and excited.
6: So let's get into Digicel's exchange offer. So around the end of March, before the US Fed announced a series of measures to try to stabilize the credit markets, credit spreads were widening and the market was dropping every day. And boom, Digicel announces an exchange offer. Can you walk us through the dynamics,
4: Kyle? Yeah, sure. So under the proposal, about 1.3 billion aggregate principal amount of Digicel Limited 6% notes due 2021 would be exchanged uh, for a mix of securities that amounts to about $0. 92.3 cents of consideration. Um, in the in the uh consent solicitation memo, it outlines the diffle secured notes, diffle unsecured notes, and diffle subordinated notes. So the way that it works is you're getting up to six hundred twenty-six point six million of the secureds, up to three hundred seventeen point two million of the unsecureds, and up to two hundred fifty six. Point one million of the subs, and that's going to be going to the DL twenty twenty one note holders. The DL twenty twenty three note holders, um, of which there's nine hundred twenty five million aggregate principal amount outstanding, those would be exchanged uh, for up to an aggregate amount of seven hundred eighty six point three million. 8% senior unsecured notes due 2027. And then the DGL1s, you'd have 1 billion of DGL1s being exchanged for 941 million of new 8%, 2%. 8% cash, 2% pick, I'm sorry, secured notes due 2024 that are going to be issued by a newly formed entity, DGL 0.5 Limited. And DGL 0.5 Limited is going to own all of DGL1's current subsidiaries and other assets upon settlement. Um, So the way you can envision that currently, um, you've got Digicel Limited, which is the Caribbean business. You've got Digicel Pacific, which is the Papua New Guinea business. Um, That those assets are currently owned by DGL1. Under this deal, DGL0.5, a newly formed entity, is going to sit in between DGL1 and those assets, and DGL0.5 will own those assets. Uh, moving on, you've got DGL2. Um, 937.1 million aggregate principal amount of those 8.25% in senior notes um, are going to be exchanged for $300 million Pick unsecured 2025 notes and 50 million 7% Pick convertible notes. Um, and then you've got, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 993 million of the DGL2 uh, 9.125% cash pay Pick notes due 2024. And those are going to be exchanged for 100 million Pick unsecured 2025 notes and 100 million. Uh, sorry, 150 million
6: pick convertible notes. Let's assume everyone participates and the deal goes according to plan. What does it achieve? Before the deal,
4: when you look at sales capital structure and you look at the business, you quickly conclude that there's too much debt. A lot there's a lot of debt coming due next year, and liquidity's tight this deal decreases leverage by 1.6 turns to around six times. It pushes out Digicel's debt maturity so that the company has no large obligations to address before 2024. And then it also lowers interest expenses by 25% to around $375 million, which would make it easier for the company to generate free cash
6: flow going forward. Okay, now let's talk about this from the creditor perspective. Going from the DIFL creditors to the DGL2 junior creditors, what pro forma leverage would each investor be looking at?
4: Pro forma, you're creating the DIFL secureds at around three times, uh, the DIFL subordinateds at around 3.8 times, uh, the new digital limited bonds at around 4.8 times, the DGL 0.5 secured at around 4.9 times. And then the you are five point five times levered all the way through the the, the DGL zero point five box. So if you just take the DG the DL twenty ones for example, they are getting a mix of diffle secured, DIFL unsecured, and diffle subordinated notes. And your the your again your creation leverage is around three times, uh, three point four times for the unsecureds, and then three point eight times. The twenty ones trade at around sixty cents. And uh, the, the breakdown in consideration, very roughly, you're getting around 52% of secured paper, 26% of unsecured, and then 21% of subordinated. And so the question is, where do you believe that new take-back paper is going to trade, given your pro forma leverage? And how does that stack up against where you're purchasing the 2021s? I would imagine that's an exercise many have done and or are doing for each of the different notes throughout the capital structure to be, to, to try and figure out where to be set up. Of course, that's simplified because there's a lot to take into consideration regarding Digicel's business. For example, it's not a given that that EBITDA is going to remain constant in the company's main markets, uh, Jamaica, Haiti, El Salvador, etc. Um, given what's going on with coronavirus, uh, for one one thing to note is that a lot of these countries are heavily reliant, their economies rather are heavily reliant on remittances from the United States. So, trying to figure out the effect of lower remittances is just one of many exercises that investors are going to have to conduct in order to get comfortable. I think with the the risk. Level the risk reward rather uh, in this capital structure.
6: What are the results of the vote so far? About
4: ninety seven point one percent of the DGL one eight and a quarters have voted have approved. About eighty seven percent of the DGL two eight and a quarters, roughly eighty seven percent of the DGL two nine and an eighths, around eighty eight percent of the DL six percent twenty ones. And about five percent of the DL six and three quarter twenty twenty three notes.
6: How come only five point three percent of DL two thousand twenty threes? I think you've
4: got such a low approval percentage from the DL twenty twenty threes because of the disparate treatment between the DL2023 bonds and the DL2021 bonds even though both no both of the notes are pari um you know the the DL2021 note holders are getting a mix of structurally senior uh diffle notes and in 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 some instances actually struck both structurally and contractually senior because you've got the diffle secureds uh whereas the D, the the DL2023s Are, are going to see their maturity pushed back four years. Um, and they're getting new DL unsecured notes. You've got a slight coupon bump. Um, but other than that, you're, you're not really moving upwards in the structure as far as rank is concerned. Um, and so I think that's, that's the primary reason for that you're seeing the, the difference in, in voting between the, the 2021 note holders and the 2023 note holders. Now what? So, Digital announced on April fifteenth that would that it would extend the deadline for holders to be eligible for early tender premium to April twenty eighth. So that's the next deadline that we will be on the lookout for. Um, after that, assuming that you have. Roughly five percent of the uh, D- DL 2023s signing on to the deal. Um, there would be 876.2 million of debt coming due in in about three years. The 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 2023 holdout notes. Um, now remember, you still have to deal with the 60 million maturity in September, which were the holdouts uh, from the uh, prior exchange. Um, and then we'll be on the lookout for what happens with the, the DIFL creditors. So the company requested that the DIFL creditors increase the restricted payment capacity in the DIFL credit agreement to three and a half times from three times. Um, and so we will be looking to see... Um, what the outcome is of that, um, we, we heard that the DIFFL creditors uh, were working to try and form a group. I think that has fallen through, but nevertheless, it'll be good to see um, how the company and the DIFFL creditors resolve that request. So just to wrap up in terms of key dates ahead, we've got the uh, April 28th deadline for Digicel and then the May 8th government negotiation period expiry for the Argentine sovereign restructuring. So we'll be be on the lookout uh, for both of those and we will keep all of you updated. Thanks so much. Take care and back to New York.
1: Thanks, everyone. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all of our podcasts on the Site Media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe.